I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the B Street Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Joining me today is Jay Barney. He needs no introduction in the field of strategy, one of my heroes, in fact, in the field. He's Professor of Strategic Management and Entrepreneurship at the David Eccles School of Business in the University of Utah. He's a fellow of the Academy of Management and the Strategic Management Society and father of a very important area of strategy called resource-based competition. But actually today he's not talking about strategy, he's talking about culture. His new book, The Secret of Culture Change, How to Build Authentic Stories that Transform Your Organization, which came out in June of this year from HBR Press, co-authored with Manuel Amarim and Carlos Julio. And in the book, Jay discusses the importance of culture, why we need to change it, how difficult it is to change it, and the role of authentic stories in doing so. So thank you very much for joining me today, Jay. I'm glad to be here. I guess culture is maybe even more pernicious than the word strategy. We all sort of think we know what it means, but it's sort of hard to define. What do you mean yeah. by culture, Jay? Yeah, there's a lot of definitions out there. What we did is we just took with the, the most common definition in our research and, and took culture to mean the values, norms, and expectations to help define expected behavior in an organization, what an organization expects employees to have, expects them to react in different situations. And why is that important? Why do we sometimes need to change our culture? We don't always have to change a culture, certainly. And while we talk about how to change culture, we also acknowledge it's a difficult thing to do. It's not like a simple task. So you only need to change a culture when there's a mismatch between the culture and the strategy that a firm is pursuing. You said we weren't going to talk about strategy. I'm going to violate that right now. Okay, good. <laughs> because I think, I think culture is all about strategy and particularly strategy and implementation and also the creation of new strategies is embedded in, in a cultural organization as well. And so when there's a mismatch between uh, culture and strategy is when culture change has to arise to the top of, of the heap. So I guess before we get into the meat of how to change culture, it's probably important that we avoid misunderstandings about culture and culture change. What sort of ideas get in the way of, of changing a culture? Well, culture change is difficult, and for good reason. Culture is widely diffused throughout an organization. So there's no one in charge of culture, typically. Some organizations have a vice president of a culture, but typically those people are not empowered to actually change a culture. But So it's widely diffused. It's an intangible asset, hard to grab a hold of. Culture challenges the status quo in a very fundamental way. It challenges a person's identity with an organization, the core values of the company, and how those are reflected in people's preferences. Culture change can proceed at different rates in different parts of the organization, and they can conflict with each other. And then finally, because culture change is so difficult, sooner or later, it's going to face headwinds. And when that happens, rational employees sit back and wait for culture change to sort of drop down on the priority list as some other issues become more important. And so lack of leader commitment to culture change is another reason why it's very hard to change culture. Can you give us an example of a, of a clearly successful culture change, perhaps a radical change that was necessary and successful? Right. Well, the book consists of roughly 52 stories of business leaders trying to change culture. And there are different stories that they use, exemplify different attributes of, of successful story building. But sort of the seminal story, what happened was when my first co-author, Manuel Emerin, and I, we met and he's, he moved into my neighborhood. So we just started chatting and he said he was a recently retired CEO, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, great, let's get together for lunch and talk about things. And so 
I do this with former CEOs whenever I can or current CEOs. And we had an hour lunch and turned into a four-hour lunch. And he began by describing his first job as a CEO. And this became the seminal story of the book. So the way it works is that he was hired at a, at a Brazilian telecommunications company called TELSP, T-E-L-S-P, which is a division of Telefonica, the Spanish telecommunications global company. And this was an effort by the Brazilian government to privatize what it was at the time, a just horrible telephone system in Brazil. And part of the deal with the privatization was that every firm that was in that, in that industry was given a uh, five, I think it was five-year monopoly, basically to make the changes they needed to make to get the organization in shape. And so in that five-year period, this was a very much a command and control kind of organization. Basically, the government told the Telespe what they needed to do in terms of line access and things, and, and then Telespe delivered. And it delivered by telling its employees what to do. And, very much a command and control. And they built a very strong hierarchical culture associated with that. So strong, for example, that no one in the firm was allowed to ride in the same elevator car as the CEO. The CEO didn't want to hang around with his hoi polloi, you know, it's very strange. But two things were happening that were critical, though. The first was that that five-year monopoly was about to run out and they were going to get competitors because they were in the uh, Sao Paulo market and never wanted to be in that market. And the second thing that's happened is that telecommunications technology was changing rapidly. You know, we're getting the internet, we're getting mobile, and that's a whole new set of competitors. And so we're about to go from a sort of a top-down command and control world to a world where innovation and risk-taking and customer satisfaction is critical. But you've got a culture built for one strategy, and that strategy has to change. So it's a culture change. And I'm sure there are lots of elements, but if that's a success story, what was the, the pivotal CEO action that, uh, or leadership action that, that successfully transformed the culture? So what happens is Manuel, who is the CEO, my co-author, buys one of the new products that they're introducing, a new internet product, and it doesn't work. And so he calls up the phone center. They used to have a system where the CEOs and executive team would have one help desk, but they canceled that. Everyone goes to the same phone system and uh, calls in and gets this guy, and, and they're on the phone for two hours to try to make this thing work. And just can never make it work. And finally, Ben Mill says, you know, I'm the CEO of the company. And the, the guy on the phone says, yeah, no, you're not. You doesn't believe him. Finally talks him into it and says, and Manuel says, okay, what would you have needed to know in order to solve my problem? And the guy says, well, these, I need these 14 things. He had a list of 14 things that he needed to know. And then the story building happens and begins. And Manuel says, would you be willing to come to my senior management team and Describe to them these 14 things and what you need to know in two weeks. And, and so that happens in two weeks. This hourly worker at a call center ends up giving a lecture to the senior management team about what information they need in order to be able to support this product. Totally flips the culture upside down. Done in a pretty public space. This gets diffused very, very quickly throughout the organization and signals that we, we have to move from top-down command and control to a much more customer-oriented, customer-focused. He then thanks the call center guys. They leave. He turns to his people and says, how many of these 14 did you know about? And he said, we knew about seven of them. So, okay, you can develop a new plan, a plan for solving these issues and present it to us in two weeks. And you have to present it to these call center guys too because they actually know what's going on. So and that's the first story that ends up beginning the transformation. Yeah, that's a, that's a great story, Jay, because it sort of touches on many of the 
six key characteristics that you talk about in the book being common across these 50 or so stories. So maybe let's double click briefly on, on each of them. So your first one you deal with is authenticity. In that story you just told us, I guess the authenticity is in the fact that it's a real incident. It's, it's, it's not a... The authenticity actually here is actually at a personal level. It's with the business leader. The business leader has to have the values that are consistent with the new culture they're trying to implement. I mean, if a business leader stands up in front of his people and says, I want you guys to all be more transparent, but is not himself transparent, or I want you all to be more risk-taking, but is not him or herself risk-taking, that kind of hypocrisy just dooms culture change. Well, let's double-click on that one, because that's a little tricky. It is. Obviously, the incumbent leader is, is the one with the power to do everything you talk about. I'm wondering how often a, a leader says, you know what, I'm not the right person for this new strategy. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough call. We did see some examples of that, but you're exactly right. Culture change, ironically, it's all about changing values and the way that people in an organization interact with each other. But it begins with deep introspection by the business leader on two dimensions. The first is, what is the new strategy that we have to pursue? Because if you just say, I'm going to change culture because I really want to change the culture, that's an ego trip. There's not a business case for that. So there has to be a strategic, what is the strategy we actually going to do? So that's the, the, the strategic change we have to implement. That's our first, first introspection. And the second is, am I the right person to lead that culture change? And we have actually seen, we have a few examples of people who say, you know, I'm not the right guy. And recuse themselves. They either, some have retired, some become the board chair, some uh, move a different place in the organization. But that actually is a prerequisite for a culture change. I guess that links to your second key success factor, which is also a little controversial, I think, or at least uncomfortable for some leaders, I imagine, which is you say that the leaders must make themselves the star of the story. And I'm wondering, A, is everybody comfortable with that? And, and B, you know, where do you draw the line with self-aggrandizement? It's really interesting. As if leaders had a choice, right? I mean, if you're a business leader, you are the star of the story, okay? People watch what you do very, very carefully. And so if you're not willing to start in a culture change story that you build, then that really speaks to the question, why are you really a business leader in this context? So in terms of self-aggrandizement, the reason you have to star in the story is because your actions stick a stake in the ground, which increase the confidence of your employees that you're actually going to follow through on the culture change you've suggested. So that's why it's important you do it. But if it becomes self-aggrandizing, then it becomes an issue. I'll give you an example going back to the Telespe case. So that story gets spread around very, very quickly, diffuses incredibly rapidly over the internet. Within a couple of hours, everyone in the organization knows that it's had the telephone workers lecturing senior management. It also gets picked up by the business press and becomes the, the front page story of the leading Brazilian business magazine. Here's the trick. Manuel asked them to tell this, that story from the point of view of the hourly worker, not from his point of view. And so he still stars in the story, sometimes in the background, but nevertheless showing his real commitment to cultural change in the organization, but avoiding the self-aggrandizement. I, I got that. Yeah, it sounds like the IT guy is at least a central character, if not the hero. Yeah, that's right. Interestingly, he is kind of the hero. One of the outcomes of this is they hire him as a, as a management trainee. He's a 24-year-old guy, you know, works part-time at the, at the call center, and then he gets a nice job out of it. So. Yeah, very, very symbolic action, I guess. That's right. 
So your third one is a clear break with the past. And, you know, one level that, that sounds obvious, you're changing a strategy, you're changing a culture. But, you know, often things acquire legitimacy through the historic purpose or the origin story of the company. Is there a gray zone? Is, is there a way in which the past contributes to the legitimacy of the new story? It can. I have to say, you know, I go back to the data. We didn't see a lot of examples of that. In principle, I can imagine that happening. But most of this stuff was, yeah, the old culture. I'll give you a real example. This was at the Femcare division at Procter & Gamble, whose first woman division general manager, Melanie Healy, wanted to change the organizational culture of that business unit. Large market share, but no real growth. Very, very mature market. And everyone was satisfied, but Melly was not satisfied. The culture of the organization was very much an engineering, manufacturing culture. Product functionality is important, but you know, got to keep the cost low, crank out the stuff at high volume and low cost. And her vision for the division was that feminine care products, self-care care products can actually empower women. I won't take the time to go through the details of that, but it's, it's a very ennobling concept for the business unit. And she builds stories to help these engineering-oriented individuals to go from that, that tradition, that was their historical culture, and radically change this to develop products that, that delight their, their female customers, their women customers. And by the way, the results are remarkable. I mean, she grows market share in this incredibly mature market, 10 points in six years. I mean, this is it's an incredible success story. I, I will say, to speak to this point, one sign that you've done a pretty good job of breaking with the past is that a lot of your employees, when you build your first story, they'll be confused. What is this guy doing? This is crazy. And yet that confusion is a good sign. Now you build some more stories and, and explain what's going on through those stories and then people start understanding. That example you just gave of P&G, I mean, it, it sounds like in a sense that was not a culture accompanying a new strategy. The culture was the strategy in a certain sense. No, that's, that's fair. Culture and strategy become so intertwined that it's sometimes it's hard to separate the two. We still do so analytically as if we can in real life. They're sort of linked very tightly. So the strategy was manufacturing and the culture was manufacturing. I'm simplifying dramatically, obviously. And between those two, they were married perfectly. But it didn't enable them to differentiate their product in a new way, which was to try to build products that delighted their customers. Your fourth of six is the importance of appealing to both head and heart. And I think that's very much in tune with much of what we hear about sort of modern personnel management. You know, we often have bureaucracy and hierarchy and impersonal workplaces as a, as a sort of straw man enemy. But I mean, I guess there are advantages of minimizing emotions in the workplace too, of, of things not being primarily cold reason decisions and not emotional decisions. Once you've unleashed the genie of emotional motivation, can it go too far? Can it get out of control at all? You can't put that genie back in the bottle, though. That, that one has happened. Uh, so the question isn't, can we ignore the affective emotional dimensions of our, how our employees operate at work? That's not the question. We can't ignore it. The question is, how do you manage it effectively? Our point with, with head and heart is that, on the one hand, there has to be a business case for culture change. If there's not a business case for culture change, then it's an ego trip, and no one's going to take it seriously. But to pretend that culture change is like changing uh, some other modest administrative uh, function in organization is just confusing, because organizational culture is about personal identity. It's about your sense of purpose at an organization. 
your career, all that stuff. And our research suggests that, that business leaders are really effective when there's a good business case. Go back to the FemCare business at PNG. There's a, there's a business case. The business case is we need to differentiate our product in new ways. But to do that, we have to reconceptualize the product, build a new culture, and get our employees, all of whom, by the way, are solely locked in the old culture, to get them thinking about how we can build products that could delight their female customers. So I'm wondering in respect to that, whether there's a link to, to culture wars here. One of the new challenges of businesses is, you know, operating in an environment where identity politics is rife. And I've seen a number of examples, I'm not sure that you have, where with extremely good intentions, you know, a leader has taken a stance on an issue and they've actually succeeded in inadvertently importing the polarization of their environment because that stance then divides people internally. So I guess if you're, you know, if you're taking a stance on any emotional issue, there's a certain amount of alignment which is necessary as well as a certain amount of unleashing. What tools did leaders have for managing that tension? No, that's why the business case is important. If there's a business case for importing culture wars in your organization, which by the way, I'm rather skeptical about that, but if there's a business case, then there's a reason to do it beyond the emotional stuff that we've been talking about. But if it's not a business case, and the business case for us is typically how is this going to help us implement our, our strategy more effectively, either develop a new strategy or implement a new strategy? Uh, listen, business is massive and diverse. So there might be some business where, in fact, importing culture wars in the way you're describing them, there's a business case for doing so. We don't have any examples of that in our book, but that doesn't mean they don't exist. The next one, five of six, is about the importance of theatricality. And I'm wondering how that can be reconciled with authenticity or even the capabilities and predispositions of leaders because I mean I guess we can all think of you know self-effacing uh, sort of modest leaders that are the the opposite of theatrical so so tell us about how theatricality works in practice it's interesting because unlike the others theatricality is not a requirement it's helpful but it's not essential or not as essential as as the others it's quite interesting when a, a business leader who is naturally introverted, not given to theatrical displays, when that business leader sucks it up and engages in theatrical story building, it sends such a powerful message. A more powerful message is sent there than is the case if you have this outgoing theatrical person anyway. That's just a natural extension of their personality. But that person who goes against their personality in order to drive a point home, that, that makes it a very powerful story. And I guess that's linked to the sixth, the last one, which is you talk about cascading stories. So the story is not just the initial launch of the story, it's the, the retelling, the evolution of the story, which sounds like a very unpredictable process. But what, you know, what knobs are tweaked to make that process of cascading happen? We have no examples in our data of successful culture change that did not start at the top. There's a big debate about top-down versus bottom-up. No, no. Culture change is fundamental. If the business leader, the person in charge, whatever the business unit or the function or the company as a whole, is not building the story, then it's not culture change. On the other hand, it's not just top-down. Also, you also have to engage others to build stories as well. That's what we mean by a cascade is that a real quick example, a really good example. This is company called Traeger Grills is a company in the uh, outdoor cooking business. And for a variety of reasons, they've had to move their headquarters. There's a, it's all explained in the book in some detail. 
and they're trying to build a new culture. And the new, one of the values of the new culture is a real commitment to customer service, which is radically different than the old culture where customers were secondary. And so the, the CEO has engaged in several story building efforts to try to deliver that message to people. Well, he wasn't sure what was happening. And then, then he comes in on a Monday and his VP of sales comes in and says, hey, did you hear about what Rob did over the weekend? Rob's this lower level guy in the organization. And I said, no, what did Rob do? And he says, well, he got this phone call from a customer up in Seattle, the company's in Salt Lake City, up in Seattle. And the customer who was a uh, assistant manager at Costco, which is a big a distributor of uh, Traeger, and his, his Traeger was having problems. And so Rob diagnoses the problem over the phone, goes to the office, gets the right part, gets an airplane ticket, flies to Seattle, fixes the guy's grill, helps him marinate his steak or whatever, gets him started, and then flies back home and then comes to work on Monday and like nothing's happened. And then, of course, what happens is this assistant manager at Costco tells his boss, who tells the Costco merchandiser, who tells the Costco VP of sales, who contacts the VP of sales at Traeger and says, well, you guys are awesome. And of course, it's, uh, it's, and then this finally goes back to Jeremy Andrews, the CEO, and his response is, it's happening. We've built these stories, but now these people are taking these stories on and building themselves. So what you want to do is facilitate that. Now, you can do some things to make that happen. For example, you can seed stories. So once you build a few stories as a leader, you can go to critical people in your organization who are widely seen as important leaders. And you say, I want you to build a story that's consistent with this new culture we're building. Now, you can't build a story for them because then it's not authentic. So they have to build their own story but you can actually seed them. Another thing you can do is when these stories start getting built, you can, you can describe them, you can give awards to people, you know, best uh, consumer support person in the company. In fact, in, in Traeger, they named a customer support award after Rob, it became the Rob Award to celebrate his story. So there's some things you can do on the margin to help that process unfold. Yeah, that, that links to a sort of a, a question I was wondering about, you know, underpinning this, deliberate strategy of culture change. You know, clearly what you say has very, some very emergent properties. It depends on how people interpret the story and how they react personally and so on. And I'm wondering whether one can really design that. And I, and I guess that sort of splits into two things. You know, the, the stories you give in the, in the book of culture change, I'm wondering how, how deliberate they were and how partially serendipitous they, they were. And, and I'm also wondering like what are the limits of being able to design what a group of people in a dynamic environment believe? Once you build a story, you no longer have any control over it. That is for sure. As an author, I find that's true with my articles I write as well. People cite me and say things that I'm pretty sure I never said. But uh, so you lose control very, very quickly. But that's actually not a problem. That actually can be a strength of the culture change process. What happens when people hear a story or see a story, then they tell it and they retell it. And in each retelling, it gets modified a little bit. And so it's not under total control, but it's directionally correct. That's what we're interested in, is moving in the right direction. And so when that's the case, it works out okay. As a matter of research, we made no effort at all to verify the accuracy of the stories that were told by our business leaders in the book. And the reason for that is, how would you do that? You, you ask them what they did. And then you go to their employees, and the story's been told and retold many times. It's taken on its own life. There's always often a very, uh, some of a disconnect between what, what the CEO says happened and what other people in the organization say that happened. The question isn't the facts of the story. 
so much as what does that story that is being told, what values does it imply? Let me give you an example. There's a company here in town that I work with called ARUP Laboratories, and they do laboratory testing business and are very successful at what they're doing. And because it's medical technology, they, they have a zero tolerance for dishonesty. They can't, they have to keep this stuff confidential and on and on. And so I was at a meeting with the CEO once, and one of the direct reports said, I just heard this story about how you established this zero tolerance policy, that you fired a guy for cause because you took a donut out of a box of donuts that was left in the, in the print room or in some room. And the CEO just laughs and says, that is not what happened. To take the long story and make it short, there was a guy who was stealing someone else's food from the refrigerator. He did it three times. They caught him on video doing this. And then they brought, he brought this guy into the office and said, listen, you can't steal other people's food. And he said, I'm not stealing anyone's food. Well, here's the video. So they fired him for stealing food and for denying that he stole the food. And it turns out he was also stealing computers from the company and selling them on the market. So that's what actually happened. And that got turned into this donut story. But the interesting thing about the donut story is it, it's consistent with the underlying value, which is we're not tolerating dishonesty. And that's the critical thing, not actually what happened. Business stories that build culture and build culture change are like myths in the way that anthropologists use the term of a myth. What actually happens is less important than the meaning of what is being told by the story. What we learn from the story rather than the facts of the story. So I wish we could go on, Jay, but we're out of time. Maybe let's uh, wrap up with a couple of more personal reflections. So you work in a business school. It, it, it has a culture, I guess. The world is changing. You know, perhaps I'm not sure whether you've attempted to change the culture of your, your department or, or whether you've considered that. How does all of this apply to, to you in your work? Well, it's interesting at different levels. So at the department level, it's actually quite important. We built a new culture. We, built, we started an entrepreneurship strategy group when I first arrived at the University of Utah. And we were very clear that we wanted to build a particular kind of culture. It had some nice administrative aspects, like we hire no jerks. Okay, we have a no jerk rule. If you're a jerk, you don't get hired. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how productive a scholar you are, how good a teacher you are. If you're a jerk, it's too costly. So, But we also invest in time together. And we build lots of stories around working together, building papers. And so I think we've been, we've been pretty successful at applying most of these techniques at the level of our department where we have, you know, if you include all our faculty and adjuncts and everything, we have 60-some people in the department. At the business school, it's more challenging. And at the university, universities have been around for 2,000 years. It's even more challenging. But I know there are deans and business school presidents who are trying to build stories to help change their cultures. Well, thanks very much for spending time with me, Jay, and congratulations on the, on the book. A terrific read, I think, for anyone in business that wants to think about the implementation and the emotional and the engagement dimensions of strategy, which are obviously very critical. Thank you very much. Thank you. I've been speaking to Jay Barney about his new book, The Secret of Culture Change, How to Build Authentic Stories That Transform Your Organization, which came out in June of this year from uh, Harvard Business Press. If you like this podcast, subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. And as always, we welcome your feedback.